I wonder how many of y'all remember the uh, existential threat that came against our nation uh, a couple years ago. It began up in the Northwest. Uh, and I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the murder hornets. The, age, the giant Asian hornets that supposedly were going to come in and make a mess of everything. You know, I, I'm not surprised that not many of us would remember the stories about the murder hornets because every time you turn around, there's something new that's threatening our world that we're supposed to be afraid of. You know, just this weekend, we had the uh, giant balloon come floating across our nation. Now, I don't know if the balloon was a distraction from the fact that we've got an issue with our climate right now. Mount Washington in New Hampshire set a record for the lowest wind chill ever recorded. So I'm afraid that we might be entering into a time of global cooling. And going back into the ice age where we're all going to freeze to death like they, they used to scare me about when I was in third and fourth grade that we were coming into a new ice age. But, but don't fear. There's no reason to be afraid. Our government has it all under control. <laughs> they proved that yesterday by launching a $200 million aircraft to fire a $400,000 Stinger missile to take down a balloon made in China. Now, I, I, I've heard a rumor, and I don't know for sure if this is true or not, that to accomplish that incredibly important tactical mission they had to ask a retired naval aviator who goes by the call sign maverick <laughs> to come out of retirement to save our our nation from this terrible threat of a chinese balloon all Joking aside, you don't have to look very far to see the nut craziness that's going on in our world. It's on the news every day. There's some type of, of, of new threat. There's some type of new issue. Uh, I was joking about one of these issues this morning and, and, uh, with Kirby, and Kirby said, you know what? I'm in my 70s. I'm going to be gone before long. Y'all can deal with this mess. You know, that's the sad truth. Our children and grandchildren are faced with a world that is a mess. It is broken. It is horribly confusing and messed up. But you know what? I've been reading Genesis and Exodus the last couple months, or couple last month, and our world has been a mess since Genesis 3. God created a beautiful perfect environment. He created it, and he placed humans in this perfect world so that he could have a relationship with them. But he created them in his image, part of that image, meaning that those humans would have an option to love him or not love him, to choose him or not choose him, to obey him or not obey him. And he, put a, he, he gave them that, that very clear option, and we looked at last week, by planting 
a tree smack down in the middle of the garden. And he gave them everything that they would want to eat, all kinds of things that were good for food, that would sustain them, that would bring them joy and happiness and peace. And he said, but I'd ask you one thing, don't eat of that tree. He gave them an option. Well, just like my kids, if I told them don't do that, what was it that they were going to want to do? And that's what Adam and Eve did. They chose to sin against God. They chose to do exactly what he told them not to do. Now, it didn't surprise God. We already saw in Genesis chapter 1 when he created Adam that he told him, he said, when you eat, or as in Genesis, Genesis 2, he told Adam, when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So God knew it was coming. It didn't surprise him. And, and that's part of the beauty of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy toward us. Is he loved us so much, even knowing that we were going to turn against him. He still created us, and he still gave us choice, and he still provided a way. That's the, the sovereign God who loves his creation. Now, why he gave us a choice, you can surmise. I believe it's because God wanted someone who could truly choose to love him back because the essence of love requires a choice. And so we come to Genesis chapter 3. We've been working through Genesis from, from chapter 1, verse 1. We're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 24 today, where we see the devastating consequences of sin. If you would read with me, I'll be reading from the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. The scripture says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you were cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children, painful effort, and your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow and you will, until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. You are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take up and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirls, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. 
We have spent some time talking about the nature of the literature here in Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 11, so I'm not going to camp on that a lot. I've already been accused of, of speaking too long earlier once today, so I'm going to try to keep the sermon under control because there is a lot of really good stuff here. But I, So I want to narrow our focus to look at what were sin's consequences and what did God do about it. The first thing that I want you to notice about this, and this is what stands out immediately, is the separation that came between God and man. The first consequence of sin is there is a, a division that's taken place. Up until this point, Adam and Eve would walk in the garden with the Lord. And the Hebrew term that's used there for walk is oftentimes used to indicate a close relationship. Uh, when you talk about, I, I walked with someone through life, that may not... I walk, I walk with Susan through life, okay, as, as my partner in marriage. It doesn't necessarily mean that we hold hands and every step we take, we're walking physically together, but it, it indicates that we are in unison, that we're together, that, that there's a commonality, and that there's, we're together in all we do. She may be a counselor at, at Bear Creek Intermediate School while I'm serving as a pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga on Monday through Friday, and yet we're, we're in it together. We're together in it. Adam and God walked together. They were in a relationship where they had fellowship and communion together as in the early days until the time of disobedience when they broke God's command. And what happened at that point, Adam and Eve's sin stained them so that they were now different from God. God is a holy God. God has never known sin. God is perfect. And because Adam and Eve had sinned, they were now stained by disobedience and by sin and by rebellion. And there was a necessary separation between man and God. And that's why this is referred to as the fall, uh, the fall of man or the fall of Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they went from a, a place where they could be in unison in a relationship with God to a lower level of existence. They still bore the image of God, but that image had been corrupted by their sin. One of the things that, that there are a couple of things I want you to notice about this from Adam and Eve, they immediately knew that their disobedience was wrong. They knew that they had sinned. There was no Ten Commandments at the time. There was no law uh, written down that, that, that was an extended you know, issue of this is sin and this is not sin. But they immediately knew when they disobeyed God, they were at odds with God. They knew in their heart of hearts the consequences of their sin, or they knew the separation from God. They, they, they went and hid. It, there was a, you see this physical separation where now we've got to go hide from God. You've been there. You've, you've had your, your children who would, they would do something against you. They go, I remember we had clothes hampers. My dad built our house. We had these clothes hampers under the sinks. I would go hide in the clothes hamper thinking there's no way mom will find me now, right? Of course, the first place mom would come look was the clothes hamper because she knew that that's where I hid. Adam thought that he could hide from God. Oftentimes when we sin against God, we think that we can hide our sin from God. We separate ourselves, and that's why in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the darkness and how those who do evil, those who sin, love the darkness because the darkness will hide our sin. My brother, when he was uh, on patrol as a, a young officer in Austin, his favorite time to work was that evening shift where most of the shift was during the, 
darkness because that's when all the activity was. Kept him busy all night long. Yeah, that's when people would do their dirty deeds in the dark of night. Adam tried to hide from God because he knew that his sin was wrong, just like we know that our sin is wrong. You don't have to tell children generally that something's wrong. They already know it. I think one of the mistakes we make sometimes in the church is we shout too loudly about the, uh, the, the fact that sin is wrong. And I think most people know in their heart of hearts that adultery is wrong. <laughs> when they cheat on their wife, it's wrong. When they steal, it's wrong. When they commit murder, it's wrong. We, we know it. There, we have a conscience. God's put something inside of us that reminds us of that. And they were ashamed of their disobedience. They were ashamed of their sin. They were ashamed of what they'd done. And then the, the, the last thing that I want you to see here is they begin to seek to blame others for their sin. They want to rationalize their sin away. They want to blame someone else. So back to the text, immediately it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. The word that's translated sound there is the word in Hebrew that's generally translated voice. So they heard the voice of God. It could be translated sound of God, but however you translate it there, it needs to be translated the same way down in verse 10. In verse 10, our CSB says, I heard you in the garden. There's a footnote that says, I heard your sound or the sound of you in the garden. Basically, Adam and Eve heard God. They heard his voice. They heard him coming. And, and then they say in verse 10, we heard your voice in the garden, and we were afraid. Aren't we afraid of God's word? Aren't we afraid to come to God's word when we know that we've sinned? Because God's word exposes our sin. I believe that's what Scripture means when it says that the word of God is like a two-edged sword. It cuts to the quick. His word will expose our sins. We don't want to come and lay our lives before the word of God when we've sinned. The voice of God, the word of God will expose our sin. And just the fact that when God stepped into the garden and they heard his voice, they went and hid. They didn't want to be around him because they knew that they sinned against him. And then you come down to, to verse 11. It says he asked, and, and it's interesting because there's four rhetorical questions here. God already knew the answer to these. When God says, where are you? He knew where they were. They weren't really hiding from God. You can't hide from God. When God asked the question, uh, who told you that you were naked? God knew how they figured it out, right? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God already knew that they'd eaten from that tree. And so when God asked that question, and he poses these questions to Adam, Adam's reply is to blame both God and Eve. You see that? He didn't just blame Eve. He didn't just say, it's the woman's fault. He said, the woman that you gave me. It's your fault, God. You're the one who put me in this position. You're the one who gave me that woman, and then she caused it to happen. How often do we seek not just to blame others for our circumstances, but to blame God for our circumstances? We're tired, we're lonely, we're depressed, and we sin against God. And we tell God, well, God, it's because you put me in this position. You're the one who, who didn't give me what I wanted. You're the one who didn't meet my needs. You're the one who didn't provide for me, so I had to do it. Like, we're better at providing for all needs than God is. Like, we know better what we need than what God does. And yet, that's what we do. We blame God for our circumstances. I've heard it even with the debauchery that's taken place 
with the sexual morality in our culture today. God made me this way. No, he didn't. That's sin. That's rebellion against the person that God made you. When, when you commit immorality, when, when, when you reject the, the man or the woman that God made you, you reject your gender identity and you want to identify something else, or you reject uh, your, uh, your human identity and you identify as a cat or whatever. When you do that, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God's design. You're rejecting God's purpose for you. You're rejecting God's work and, and God's creation. You're, you're rejecting his, his, very, uh, his very creation, His very purpose. And it's a rejection of God. It is a direct disobedience to God. And that's what Adam and Eve understood they had done. They had disobeyed God. Once again, they didn't have a list of commandments. They didn't have, you know, the Texas State Code, the criminal code with, you know, 8.1 or 8.2 or 8.3.a or whatever. They didn't have a, a criminal code that they could line their misgiving or their sin up against. God said, don't do it. And they did it. And they knew because of that, that they were separated from a holy God. Sin separates us from God. Second, sin creates hardship in this life. God told Adam that when you eat of that tree, you will surely die. But what happened long before they died, there wasn't an immediate lightning bolt that came down and hit Adam and Eve in the head. They began the process of death the moment that God removed them from the garden. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, God expresses to them some of the consequences of their sin. He begins with the serpent. He tells the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You move around on your belly, you'll eat dust all the days of your life. There'll be hostility between you and woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and, he, and, and you will strike his heel. Now, I grew up uh, kind of in the country. I grew up around... Uh, my granddad did some ranching and farming, and so I, I am not wholly averse to snakes. I, I've learned that, that s there are some snakes that are great. You want to have them around because they eat the mice, they eat the rats, they'll deal with vermin. Uh, but I know a lot of people that they, they just can't stand any sand snakes. In fact, the saying that I hear probably more than any other is there's only one good snake, and that's a dead snake. There is some type of, of enemy that's been made between this beautiful creation. <laughs> the serpent was the most beautiful creation originally. wonder what he looked like before he, uh, he got cursed. But there, there's this there's disconnect between humans and, and creation. And, of course, I love to use that to my advantage. One of the guys that we hunt with is one of my, my brother's best friends who is deathly afraid of snakes. So periodically you have to find a good realistic-looking rubber snake and you know, put it in his camper or something like that just for the entertainment value uh, of watching what happens at that point. There tends to be this, this disconnect between humans and serpents. Now, we're going to deal with verse 15 in more, more in depth here in a little bit, but set aside in your mind, uh, especially the last half of verse 15, that there's, there's going to be this, this uh one who's going to be risen up, who is offspring of Eve, who will strike the serpent's head and ultimately uh, put an end to him. The serpent was punished for its part. Eve was punished for her part. God said to the woman, 
I will intensify your labor pains. You'll bear children with painful effort. You know, my wife, there was at least four times in, in, in our marriage that she was mad at Eve. Every time she had a child, she was mad at Eve. Now, it didn't help that when we were having our children, and some of you will identify with this, it was during that time when we were all told that it was best, it was best for you and not for the child, not to use any painkiller. No sedative at all. The best thing to do was use the Lamaze breathing technique. And that would help you focus. And then you wouldn't feel the pain of childbirth. My wife says that's a lie. <laughs> she experienced great pain in childbirth. I wonder what it would have, have been like to live in the world before sin. Now, of course, Adam and Eve had not had children at that point. But what would it have been like to actually been able to give birth and experience the joy and the excitement of the blessing of the child without the curse of the pain and the suffering that led up to it and the labor pains. And God created us originally not to have to suffer, not to have to, to deal with this excruciating pain. And that was one of the things that Eve was going to face. And it wasn't the only thing. I don't believe that we get, you don't see all of the consequences of sin laid out here. And then for Adam, he told Adam that because he ate of the tree, I want you to notice something here. Every actor in this sinful disobedience to God, every actor was held personally responsible for their action. Eve wasn't held responsible for Adam eating the fruit. Adam could have been held responsible for Eve eating the fruit because Adam was the one who God initially told, don't eat of the tree. And Adam was right there with Eve when the serpent showed up and she did it. Matthew pointed that out last week. It wasn't like the, the, the serpent came along and caught Eve off by herself somewhere and tricked her into doing something she didn't know she wasn't supposed to do, and then she tricked Adam into it. Adam was standing there with her. They were, they were supposed to be in this together. Now, Adam just sitting there going, okay, whatever. You know, <laughs> I'll eat some too. If you want to have some, I'll have some. Uh, what do you want to eat today? Uh, Adam and but Adam and Eve and the serpent were all held personally responsible for their part in the sin. And here's a truism about this. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Our world is a mess and will be a mess until Jesus comes back. Because of the, consequent, the consequences of sin entering this world through Adam and Eve. Scripture teaches that. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are prone to sin. But I also believe that the reason that you and I are separated from God and destined to an eternity away from God is not because of Adam and Eve's sin. It's because of your sin and my sin. I'm held responsible for my own sin. I'm not held responsible for Adam's sin or Eve's sin. There's a, there's a truism that because Adam and Eve messed up, all of their children ended up messed up, and all their grandchildren ended up messed up, and all their great-grandchildren ended up messed up, and it just passed right on down. And, and just like because you are not a perfect parent and your children are not going to be perfect children and they're not going to be perfect parents and that sin's going to continue to roll right on down. But the bottom line is God is going to hold you accountable personally for your sin. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and God holds us accountable for that. Just as he held Adam, Eve, and the serpent accountable for their parts and their sin. In Adam's sin in particular, I saw something that was intriguing here that I wanted to point out to you. Up until that day, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, God had given Adam the job of caring for the garden. 
He had purpose and meaning in life. God had created this beautiful place for him to live, this beautiful uh, 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 home for him. And he, he told him, you're going to take care of it. You're going you're gonna, to uh, work in the garden. You're going to enjoy it. And Adam was going to find purpose and meaning serving in the midst of God's perfect creation. Work, we pointed out specifically, was not a consequence of the fall. Work is a part of our purpose. We're, we, we serve with the Lord in conjunction with him as stewards of all that he's created. And so every day, when, if, if God has blessed you with a job and he's given you purpose and meaning in life, and you get up and, and, and in the mornings and go to work, that's a blessing from God. And it brings purpose. Talk to somebody that is retired and found they had nothing to do. And they struggle with meaning and purpose. Okay? But hardship and turmoil and trouble in our work is a consequence of the fall. So here, the scripture says that God put thorns and thistles on the earth, and Adam was now going to have to deal with those. He also put nut grass, if you've ever had to deal with that. Try to plant a garden in May, Texas now. You can't because of the nut grass. It'll fight you all the time. I wonder, now this is, I'm going to I'm going to be cautious here and watch my time too. I just wonder if scorpions and biting flies were a part of the original creation or if they were part of the fall. <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? Because apparently there weren't thistles and thorns in the garden. Those didn't come until God put them here. And yet I've always asked that question. Why in the world are there scorpions on earth? My wife asked the question. I understand why there are flies, but why biting flies? They don't have to bite. Why Asian murder hornets? Right? What purpose? Can we have hornets that aren't murder hornets? I, I just wonder, and, and we know that species have continued to evolve over time, and, and all of that's a part of God's beautiful design, I believe. But I just wonder if, uh, if all of the stuff we deal with was a part of God's creation or was a part of the consequence of sin that brought difficulty and pain and struggles to us all throughout this life. Here's the bottom line for all that I read, and you'll notice this about the serpent, about, uh, about Adam and about Eve. Everything that God prescribed that he laid out here that he said was going to happen was going to be something that, that challenged them and made life difficult. The struggles that we have in life the heartache, the pain, the suffering, the toil in our work, the pain in childbirth, all of that, all the pain and suffering in this life is a consequence of sin. Now, let me suggest something here, because when it, we're, we're thousands of years after Adam and Eve, and so certainly because sin entered the world, sometimes I go through suffering because of someone else's sin. Imagine a drunk driver runs into a family and kills a child. It was not the child's fault at that point. It was the fault of the drunk driver. So the consequence of evil and sin entering this world brought hardship on someone who was not directly responsible. That happens. Sometimes stuff happens in this world that's just a consequence of a fallen and broken world because of man's sin. Hailstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, natural disasters, those can be consequences of just a broken world and the brokenness of this world that has come because of 
Adam and Eve's sin, sin that entered the world thousands of years before us. But let me suggest something that, that I believe is a truism. The majority of pain and heartache in my life is because I've sinned, because I've done something stupid. I think probably most every one of us can identify with that. And if we understand that, we realize that's the case, let's quit blaming everybody else. Let's quit blaming God and let's take responsibility for our sin. And maybe most of the problems in your life are somebody else's fault. Maybe you could make that argument. I doubt it, but maybe you could try to make that argument. 75% of the stuff that's happened to me wasn't my fault. Okay, well, what about the 25 that was? You deserve to be separated from God and you deserve eternal consequences. You deserve death because of your part. How many times do we have to sin against God to be separated from him, to become unholy? Once, apparently. Adam and Eve disobeyed God once and they were stained by their sin. They were, they were made unrighteous. They were unholy and they were separated from God because of their sin. That's all it takes. If you have sinned once against God or against your brother or sister or against your parents, if you've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've been greedy, you've lusted once, you personally then are responsible for your unholiness, your unrighteousness. And you too, like Adam and Eve, ought to be hiding from a holy God because you're separated from him. That's the, the, the consequence of sin is going to bring turmoil and difficulty and pain in this life. Third consequence of sin is it results in death. Because God is the source of life. God is the one who, who in this image, in this illustration, or in, this, in, in Genesis, placed the tree of life in the middle of the garden. At that point said, Adam and Eve will no longer experience eternal life. As long as they lived in the garden, they were able to eat of the tree of life. They, they would not die. Our people in our world have been searching for that fountain of youth ever since this day. They've been looking for that tree of life. Once Adam and Eve sinned, God removed that hope of eternal life. They no longer were going to live without aging, without withering. In fact, God told Adam, he said, I took you from the dust that's where you're going back to. You're going back to the dust. You were created from the dust. You'll return to the dust. This body that I created will die. And when he separated them from the garden, when he re removes them from the garden, the word that he uses there uh, to expel them from the garden or to, to lead them out of the garden is the same word that he this used when he expelled them from Egypt in the Exodus. God removed them from the garden and he separated from the tree of life. From that day forward, Adam and Eve began the process of dying. They begin to age and they begin to die. Death comes as a consequence of sin. Scripture throughout, throughout Scripture, the New Testament is very clear in this. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. We're unholy. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God anymore. Our life is going to go through challenges for the however many days we have on this earth. It's going to be toil and turmoil and difficulty, and then we're going to die. But I want you to see God, before he created Adam and Eve, had an answer. And you see it not just at the end of this text, but you see it throughout this text. 
Verses 8 and 9, you see God pursuing Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't go looking for God. God went looking for them. And I would suggest that you, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you know the Lord and you have hope of eternal life, it's not because you went looking for him. It's because he's come looking for you. And if today you would say, well, pastor, if, if I've sinned against God and I'm, I'm, I'm going to die and there's no hope of eternal life for me, what use is it? Well, here's the good news. God is pursuing you. God wants a relationship with you. God wants to do something to restore the relationship with you, just like he did with Adam and Eve. He's looking for you. He's calling out your name. And in fact, I would suggest just the very fact that you are here this morning is an indication that there's a God in heaven who is sovereign, who loves you and desires that you become his child, that you find that forgiveness. That's the reason you're here, so that you can hear this good news. And, and one, one of two things is going to happen. When you hear the voice of God, that, the voice of the Spirit of God speaking to your heart, you're either going to do like Adam and Eve and you're going to run from it or you're going to run to it. But if you are here this morning, it's because God loves you and he's pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you, just like he wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve. He loved them so much that even though they had disobeyed him, and even though they are the ones that have rebelled against him, he came after them. Second, he doesn't give us what we deserve. This is an expression of God's mercy. Adam and Eve deserved instant death. In fact, it sounded like when God made, uh, told them what the consequences would be in Genesis chapter 2, that it would come instantly. You eat of the fruit, it's like poison. You're going to fall down dead. It's like you took cyanide. God didn't give them what they deserved. He didn't give them instant death. He provided a way because he loved them. I don't, I don't necessarily hold to this, but I wonder about this because every once in a while in Scripture, you'll see this phrase, and it makes, makes us uncomfortable when, when we believe and understand the sovereignty of God. Every once in a while in Scripture, you'll see these words, God repented from what he was about to do. He did it when he was about to destroy all of the Israelites after they created the golden calf and Moses interceded on their behalf. God repented, Scripture says. He changed his mind. Here, God had told Adam and Eve, they, the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, they would surely die. If ever you would want to say that God changed his mind, I'm just dealing with what Scripture says, okay? I'm not trying to stir up too much trouble here, but if ever you see that change of God's mind, it's always on the side of his grace because they deserved to die just like you and I deserve eternal separation from a holy God because of our sin. God always leans to the side of grace. He showed mercy by not striking them down on the spot. Indeed, instead, he engaged them with questions, these rhetorical questions, to drill them in. Where are you? Did you eat of that fruit I told you not to? He already knew the answer. Why are you hiding from me? He already knew the answer. But he brought them in because he wanted a relationship with them. Third, then God covered their sin and shame. How is it that Adam and Eve knew? Because their eyes were opened in some way and they saw their nakedness before one another and before God. And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Well, 
as in everything that we try to do to cover up our sin, it is always inadequate. It's never good enough. Those fig leaves, it wouldn't take very long before they would dry up and they would fall apart and they would have to cut more fig leaves. And there's no way that they could ever come up with an adequate way to cover themselves, to cover their shame and to cover their, their sin. And so God did something you see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. In verse 21, he made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Don't miss this. Up to this point in creation, no blood had ever been shed. But because of their sin, their sin required a sacrifice. An animal had to die so that God could take that skin to cover their sin and their shame, their nakedness. That's a picture pointing forward to not only what God does in the Old Testament, which is a picture that points even further forward to what God is going to do through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is God already had a plan in place that he was going to offer a blood sacrifice. Someone who was perfect and pure and holy was going to die and pay the price for your sin and my sin so that our shame could be covered, our guilt could be taken care of, and that we could stand once again unashamed before a holy God. Now, an animal skin certainly was an imperfect sacrifice. It, it helped cover their physical shame. It helped cover their physical nakedness, but it did not cover their sin. At this point, that, that's not enough for Adam and Eve to have entrance into the presence of a holy God. But the sacrifice that God had, pl had planned for later that was pointed to is enough the sacrifice of his son. And you see this hinted at in what is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first occurrence of the gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the scripture says, God says that I will raise up one from your seed who will destroy the serpent. That is a picture and it's a prophecy pointing forward to Jesus God's son. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Adam and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. The promise given in Genesis 3.15 is a promise of God that he had already prepared a plan that he was going to send his son to die on a cross so that we would have hope of restoration and a, a, a life made holy before God. The passage goes on to say, my point is this, the law which came 430 years later doesn't invalidate the covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For the inheritance is based on the law, is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. God through his descendants of Adam down through Abraham provided one who would crush the head of the serpent and offer us an opportunity for a completely restored relationship with the Holy God. Your sin can be washed. You can be made holy and clean before God if you put your faith and trust in the one and only Son whom he sent. In fact, that's really all God asked of you. He said, I've done it all. He died, he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he asked that you put your faith in him. If you believe in him and trust in him, you will receive the gift of that promise, restoration, and eternal life. I want to finish with, with Revelation chapter 
12, where we see this brought to a culmination. This is the, the good news fleshed out. Revelation 9.20 says, So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, was thrown to the earth and the angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Because the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice so that you, by putting faith and trust in him, could have your sin cleansed. You could be restored so that you were no longer separated from God. You could find abundance in this life. Not that you won't face any hard times, but the Lord will be with you in all of the hard times of this life if you'll simply walk in a relationship with him and the, the sting of death is ended. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, we don't have to fear taking our last breath on this earth because death has no power over us. Just like it had no power over the Son of God who was resurrected out of the grave. That's the, the good news. Genesis gives us a dark picture of man's fate because of Adam and Eve. But Genesis chapter 3 is embedded with hope of a God who loves us, pursues us, and has provided a way for us to have everlasting life through his son Jesus, whom he was to send thousands of years later. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.